You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. This is from John 12, uh, verses 12 through to 36. Thanks, guys. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed these signs, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Thanks, Rob, for that Bible reading. If you have a Bible open, please do keep it open. Uh, You want to hear God's word, not just my words. Uh, If you would find it helpful to follow along with a sermon outline, you'll find those, uh, one of those is online on our welcome card webpage. As I said earlier, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, It's been wonderful having different men preach to us through John recently, each of them pointing us to Jesus and our need to have faith in him. 
Our senior pastor, Aaron, is going to be back soon. He's got one more week of long service leave. And so he'll be back on September 4th. Uh, when he comes back, he'll be kicking off a new series in the book of Acts. So that leaves us two Sundays uh, in our current John series. And you'll have two sermons by two Adams. So there's me today. And then next week, Adam Foster will preach. Uh, let's pray as we come to think about this passage. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would shine the light of truth into our hearts and minds so that we would know you and see Jesus clearly. Amen. Growing up in a small country town meant that primary school events in summer weren't held at the local pool because we didn't have a swimming pool in our town. Instead, we went to the lake. I remember one year our school met up with some other primary schools for a big fun day at Lake Fines. And I was out in the water, it was kind of a shallow part, but I was kneeling down so the water was up around my neck. I was wearing a hat and it must have looked the same as someone else's hat because this little kid from another school came up behind me and obviously thought that I was his little friend. So he crept up and then dunked me into the water. Now, I reckon he was only maybe grade one or grade two, and I was in grade six, so I thought I was pretty big. So I stood up and towered over this kid. That was pretty unexpected. He turned and fled. In 2002, Australian Stephen Bradbury was competing in the Winter Olympics in speed skating. Now, Aussies aren't known for doing that well in winter sports, and by that stage, he'd never won a gold medal. Bradbury managed to scrape through to the finals but was not able to keep pace with his competitors. But on the last corner, the four skaters in front of him all crashed and Bradbury cruised through to win gold. That was unexpected. You know, it's easy to make assumptions about people. We think we know who they are, what they can do. We make assumptions about how events are going to play out. But sometimes the unexpected happens. And that's the case with Jesus. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. In John 12, verses 12 to 36, we'll read about Jesus saying and doing things that were unexpected. You know, the people thought they had him figured out. You know, they'd realized that he was the king, he was the Messiah. But when they got close to him, he kept acting and saying things that were unexpected. This was actually deliberate, though, so that he could show them what sort of king he was. And so I'm hoping that you might be surprised too, so that you can sharpen your understanding of who Jesus is and what it means for him to be the Messiah, the king. As we kick off in our passage, it's a very familiar scene. Hopefully you all know it. It's what we now call Palm Sunday. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with the royal welcome and the people lining the streets and waving palm branches. But there's one aspect of it that's familiar to us, but it would have actually been a bit of a head scratcher. Now, this is the second point in our sermon outline, if you're following along. It says, The Jews welcomed Jesus as the king, so why is he on a donkey? So it's the Sunday before Passover. And Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem from Bethany where he's been staying with his friends Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And you can see in verse 12 that the crowd hear that he's on his way to the city. And so it's great excitement. They take palm branches and go out to meet him. 
and have a look at what they say in verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Well, as we reflect on this, we can see what it was the Jews expected. See, they expected a warrior king. The words that they shout come from Psalm 118. Hosanna is Aramaic for save us, please. It actually comes right from Psalm 118, verse 25. It reads like this. Lord, save us, or Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. And then verse 26 continues. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Psalm 118 was a, one of a collection of psalms that the Jews sang each year on their journey up to Jerusalem for Passover. They would even recite these specific verses as pilgrims arrived in the city. They were pronouncing a blessing in the name of the Lord to those who were coming up for Passover. In this case, though, the Jews are giving that blessing to someone that they believe has been sent by the Lord. And they embrace Jesus as the Messiah. Well, how do we know that? Because of the palm branches. See, these had come to be a symbol of Israel's nationalistic hopes. They appeared in important celebrations, like when they rededicated the temple during the first Hanukkah, or when they celebrated victory over enemies. Palms even later appeared on coins that the Jews made during their war against Rome. And this is all reinforced by those extra words they add at the end of their greeting to Jesus. These words are not found in Psalm 118. They say, blessed is the king of Israel. The Jews welcome Jesus as a king. And they expect him to smash the Romans, to liberate Israel, to gather the scattered Jews who have been scattered across the empire and set up the messianic rule. So why then? Is he on a donkey? Well, Jesus wants to show that he is the humble king, the peaceful king, who humbly relies on God. You can see in verse 14 that Jesus finds a young donkey and rides into Jerusalem on that donkey. Now, some may have seen that as nothing special, just a dude on a donkey taking it easy. But others may have thought it was a bit odd given that kings usually rode on horses. In fact, donkeys were more typically a sign of peace or a sign of simpler times, which is exactly what Jesus is trying to convey. We see in verse 16 that the disciples didn't really understand what was going on at the time, but years later when they looked back, they realised they figured it out. And so John, as he's writing, he includes a quote in verse 15, that's taken from Zechariah chapter 9. If you've got your Bible open in John 12, you might like to look at that verse, verse 15, and I'm going to read out what the prophet Zechariah had to say hundreds of years earlier. He said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You probably noticed that John reworks the quote a little bit to suit his purpose because he wants the emphasis to be on how Jesus is the king and the king who comes on an animal of peace. 
this theme is found in Zechariah 9. And I do encourage you to read the whole chapter later on in your own time. But the summary is that God is the one who will fight the battle to bring peace. He'll restore the scattered nation. Peace will spread from Jerusalem to the whole world. And then God's king, God's Messiah, will come to the city and take up rule as the peaceful king because the battle has been won. That's what Jesus is showing here. Yes, he's the king, but he's the king who relies not on his own strength, but the strength of God. Jesus is a humble king who is lowly in heart. That was unexpected. It's also likely that Jesus still had the scent of Mary's perfume after she poured it out on him. Remember the previous passage we saw last week? Jesus covered in this amazing smelling perfume. And so you can always imagine the crowds have gone out to greet their warrior king. And as they wave their nationalistic palms, the air is stirred up and this beautiful scent fills their noses. And they think, oh, what's that lovely smell? Oh, it's Jesus and he smells amazing. And so rather than a muscular man with a musky scent, here's a gentle guy with a gorgeous scent. It's all a little bit unexpected, isn't it? But as we also saw last week, this perfume was in preparation for Jesus' burial. And so that gives us a bit of a lead-in to our next point, where Jesus again acts in an unexpected way. In verses 17 to 30, we learn that some Greeks asked to see Jesus. So why does he give a speech instead? In fact, there are a whole bunch of people who wanted to see Jesus. In verse 17, those who witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead previously, they're, they're getting about and they're spreading the word of this miraculous sign. Verse 18, people are going out to see Jesus who could do such an amazing miracle. And this gets the Pharisees annoyed in verse 19. See what they say? See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. It's a bit of an exaggeration, isn't it? The whole world has gone to see Jesus. But what John recounts next shows us that there were some people from beyond Israel who wanted to see this Jewish Messiah. Have a look at verses 20 to 22. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now these are most likely some Greek men who weren't Jews, but they still respected the Jewish religion. Perhaps they were what were sometimes called God-fearers. You know, those who, those Gentiles who hadn't quite converted to Judaism. They were actually allowed in the outer part of the temple, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. And don't forget, that's where Jesus turned over all those tables recently. And so maybe they'd seen that and thought, we want to go talk to this guy. So they approached Philip. We're not told why, but he's a disciple with a good, strong Greek name. Philip is a Greek name, not a Jewish name. And so they asked to see Jesus. So Philip approaches him with his brother Andrew, but Jesus does something unexpected. He launches into a speech. Now, the reason is listed in your outline. 
You see, Jesus realizes the hour has come for him to bring life to many and glory to his Father. In verse 23, he utters the words that signal the turning point for the whole book of John. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Do you remember back in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana when the wine ran out and Mary, Jesus' mother, is there and sort of whispers to Jesus that maybe he could do something and Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. In other words, it wasn't time to go public yet. But now it is time. Jesus realises that these Greek men seeking him out at the Passover is a sign from God that it's crunch time, or better yet, crucifixion time. The good shepherd who would gather his sheep from different pens to make one flock, it's time for him to lay down his life. This is made clear in verse 24. I want you to check it out. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see, Jesus could just keep living as the king who has eternal life within himself, but his people will still die. That's why, like a kernel of wheat, he has to fall and die so that something new can grow, so that life can go to many people. But his impending death will not be easy. Have a look at verses 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus feels deeply troubled or deeply disturbed. He knows that his death will be horrific. You see, the first time ever, God the Son will experience the displeasure of God the Father. He'll be cut off from life. He will experience hell. But Jesus knows that it's for this very purpose that he's come to earth. It's for this very purpose that he has come to this time where he will die. And so rather than looking for his own glory or comfort or safety, he prays that God the Father would be glorified. And then something amazing happens. God speaks from heaven. He declares that he has glorified his own name in the past, most likely through sending his son into the world. And then he will glorify his own name in the future, which we can assume is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Can you see then that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, God's chosen king, but he's a king that doesn't live for his own glory. He lives for the glory of the Father. And part of this is giving his life for the sake of the world. In fact, we can sum up the big idea of this passage with the following statement. Here's my big idea. Jesus is the Messiah, but a humble king who gives his life for the sake of the world and the glory of his Father. Jesus heard about these Greek men who were seeking an audience with him, and he decided to give a speech. 
It's unexpected. But actually, it's quite appropriate. See, he recognises this is the turning point in his mission because the world is coming to him for salvation while the Jewish leaders are off to the side plotting his death. This brings us to the next unexpected part of this passage and the fourth point in the sermon outline. The crowd believed Jesus is the Messiah, so why is he speaking about dying? Jesus gives another speech in verses 31 to 33, but we're going to look at verse 34 to see the reaction of the crowd. The crowd spoke up, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They knew from their scriptures that the Messiah would rule forever. Maybe they were thinking of Isaiah 9. You know, the verse that says uh, a child would be born, a son would be given, and he would reign on David's throne forever. And they're pretty confident that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also referred to himself as the Son of Man and then goes on to say that this Son of Man will be lifted up from the earth to die. And so they're basically saying, look, Jesus, we know that you're the Messiah and you're saying that as the Son of Man you will die, so kind of what sort of Son of Man are you? Jesus responds perhaps cryptically in verses 35 and 36 by saying, well, he's the light of the world, but once he leaves, they'll be in darkness. It'll be even harder to understand. And so he's encouraging them to have faith now and to not wait. But let's go back and consider Jesus' speech in verses 31 to 33 that led to the crowd's confusion. You see, while he is indeed the Messiah, Jesus knew that he had to first die on the cross to save the world. Let me read out his statement. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John then adds this little note in verse 33. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. You might even notice there's a link there to John 3 verse 14 and other places where Jesus foretold that he'd be lifted up as a way of describing being lifted up on a cross to die. But Jesus in this speech is describing more than just the mode of his death. He's also speaking about its effects. Now this is really important, so I want you focused and listening to this bit. There's four key things Jesus says. It's important that we understand them. Jesus says that his death on the cross was to, one, bear the judgment that we deserve. Two, drive out Satan. Three, bear humiliation and shame. And four, draw in people. So let's start with verse 31, where Jesus says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. When John uses that word, he's normally thinking about humanity in rebellion against God. It's the fallen world, the corrupt world. It's about the inner heart attitudes of sin and pride. It's also about systems and institutions that oppose God. And so because of individuals but also communities, God's just wrath, his just anger is coming against the world. The Son of Man's hour is a time of judgment. But not 
judgment upon sinners, but judgment upon Jesus, the sinless one, who stands in the place of sinners. He will bear the punishment that humanity deserves as he bears the wrath of God on the cross. No wonder his soul was troubled back in verse 27. No wonder he might be tempted to ask the Father to save him from this hour. Could you imagine not just bearing the punishment for your own wrongdoings, but the punishment of the whole world? The second aspect of the kind of death Jesus would die was one to drive out Satan. Do you notice that he's described here as the prince of this world? It's appropriate, isn't it? He's the epitome of proud rebellion against God. He wants every human to join him in that. And he whispers temptations in our ears. He sends his dark servants to torment us. He stirs up evil within our communities. And apart from the work of Jesus, we would remain ensnared by Satan's lies, trapped in the dark, with no way of knowing the way forward to God. The kind of death Jesus was going to die is one that dethrones the prince of this world. Because after all, if we are forgiven, if Jesus has died in our place and our debt is paid, then what hold can the devil have on us? He can't accuse us of being sinners. He can't demand that God judge us and cut us off from his heavenly throne. He can't stand in the way of us becoming children of light. He has no power over us. The third aspect of the kind of death Jesus would die was one to bear humiliation and shame. This might be a bit harder to grasp, but it's a thread throughout this passage. You see, Jesus is not the mighty warrior, but rather the suffering saviour. His exaltation takes place through his death. His glorification takes place through his humiliation because that is how he shows his obedience to the Father. That is how he shows that he's not concerned about his own glory. That is how he shows that he is a servant. He bears shame so that we might be set free from shame. The fourth and final aspect of the kind of death Jesus would die was one to draw in people. You see, just as Satan is driven out of the world, so too the world is drawn in. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. But he means all types of people, all sorts of people, will be drawn in and saved. And really, that's the ultimate answer to these Greek men who are seeking out Jesus. You see, once he's died and risen again, they don't have to wait in the outer courtyard, in the Gentile court. They don't have to come to one of the disciples and say, please take us to Jesus. No, they can come directly to him when he becomes the risen Lord. The world will be drawn in. Jesus is the Messiah. But as a humble king who gives his life for the sake of the world and the glory of the Father. These teachings, they were unexpected for the crowds in Jerusalem, but they were necessary so that they could truly understand who Jesus was, what sort of Messiah he was. So 
So I want to apply this to ourselves now by considering this idea. Seeing Jesus as the humble, saving king is life-changing. I have to admit, I found it challenging to think of relevant, useful application for you all this week. I kept praying and praying as I was wrestling with this passage, asking that God would help me to be able to benefit all of you. And God answered that prayer, but he did it by humbling me. As many of you know, it's been a crazy couple of months. With Aaron on long service leave, there's been lots more work for me to do. I've been challenged in new ways. I've had to work on my leadership. We've been navigating lots of projects like buying a church property, looking for a a new staff team member, been meeting with people to see how they're going in life, how they're going in ministry, how they're going in church. There's been a whole bunch of stuff going on in my personal life with family issues, chronic illness, just raising three kids. And I'm ashamed to admit that as I started this week, I was feeling it was unfair that Jesus was making my life so hard and busy at the moment. See, I was thinking, how is the gospel good news for me? How is Jesus good for me when things seem so difficult? I was feeling pretty overwhelmed and questioning God's plan. But God humbled me. Through this passage, God revealed to me that I had been viewing the Messiah in the wrong way. Maybe in subtle ways. But it was clear that at times I was viewing Jesus as my personal hero saviour. You know, his job was to make my life easy, to give me everything I wanted, and to ensure that my name was honoured and lifted high. No wonder I was disappointed how small my view of Jesus had become. That was unexpected. So would you join me now? Would you join me now in looking at three ways that this passage challenges us to see the Messiah properly, to have a right view of him? And if you're listening today and you're not yet a Christian, then I hope that what I say next will help you to see Jesus more clearly and give you even more reasons to trust in him because he's not just on about saving you for the future. He's actually about helping you to understand how to live well now. First up, we need to understand that rather than Jesus squashing your enemies and making life easy for you, Jesus deals with the real problems in your life, sin, death and Satan. You see, the crowd that were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, they wanted a military leader and sometimes we want that too. We want Jesus to defeat those people who are making life hard for us. We want our studies or work to be easier so we don't feel crushed by them. We want our difficult neighbour to stop making noise late at night or blocking our driveway with their rubbish bins. Now, don't get me wrong, it's okay to pray to Jesus about these things. You can even pray to Jesus about your neighbour's rubbish bins. But not in a way that leads you to forget the real problems that we have. Sin, death and Satan. 
And when I just said that, did any of you just kind of feel a bit of a sigh? You felt like I'd just given you some sort of pat answer, some vague spiritual platitude and felt like I'm ignoring the serious problems in your life? That's probably exactly how the crowd felt when Jesus said the same thing to them. You see, they welcomed him as the king who would squash Rome and who could squash hunger and sickness by performing his miracles. And then he gets up and he says, guess what, guys? I'm going to die. I'm going to die for your real problems. Sin, death, and Satan. And so my encouragement for us all today is to consider how wonderful it is that Jesus has the big picture in mind. He's a greater king than we can imagine. He's a greater king than we deserve because he deals with the more significant enemies that we face. The second way, properly seeing Jesus changes our life, is that rather than clinging to this life, Jesus demands you to die to yourself and find true life. Let's have a look at verse 25 because I skipped it earlier. It says this, Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, it's easy to think that Jesus is a bit of a life coach. His job is to make your life better, make it easier, give you your best life now. And it's possible that's part of the mindset of those Greek men who wanted to see him. You see, the Greeks were known for their intellectual pursuit of the good life, They're often looking for the next philosophical idea, the special insight, the pro tip to help them get ahead. Many were attracted to Jewish religion because of its clean living and its ethical approach. Perhaps these men who spoke to Philip saw Jesus as a means to making their life better, getting that edge. That's not the sort of Messiah that Jesus is. He didn't come to give you 80 years of a really good life and then you die and that's it. He came to give you eternal life, everlasting life. If we are so focused on clinging to this life, Jesus says we will miss out. If we are not willing to hate our lives, we will miss out. It doesn't mean hate yourself or go live in a cave He would certainly not want people to feel suicidal or to experience self-loathing. It's not what he's saying. What he is saying is he offers you a wonderful life in the future. That's for anyone who will believe. But you can only take hold of that future life if you hold loosely to this current life. And sure, Jesus shows us how to live well in this world now, how to thrive in our relationships, how to find joy in godly living. But see, these things flow out of loving Jesus more than you love yourself. These things flow out of looking to the life to come more than trying to hold on to this life. There are many blessings to enjoy now, but they're not always guaranteed. But eternal life begins now if you believe in Jesus. And a benefit of hating your life in a godly way is that you're less likely to be thrown about by the disappointments and wounds of this life. That's a lesson I need to learn a lot. Finally, Jesus challenges us on our views about honour. 
rather than trying to preserve our own reputation, Jesus calls you to find honour in serving and following him for the glory of the Father. Have a look at verse 26, which we also skipped over. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. You see, Jesus is more concerned about the glory of his Father than he is about his own glory. And if that's how our Messiah lives, we should follow his example. Christians are servants of Jesus. We should follow him and we should seek to value what he values. To serve Jesus is therefore to serve God the Father and to long for his name to be glorified, to be made much of. Maybe we don't ever put it this way, but I think deep down we tend to think that Jesus the Messiah came to earth for our glory, to show the world that, you know, we're the good people. You know, we're Christians, you know. If only the world would see that we know how to live well, if only the world would listen to us, they wouldn't be so miserable. We think it's about us and our glory, people thinking much of us. And even in the church, we can think that our reputation is paramount. We want other Christians to think well of us. It's a temptation for leaders, a real danger. I know for myself that I I want this congregation to value me. And if I ever feel that people are unhappy with me, I can be tempted to get down. Because you know what? I'm more concerned about my own glory than I'm about the Father's glory. Whose glory should I live for? God's glory. Whose glory should you live for? Say it with me. God's glory. And when we live for God's glory, not for our own, when we humbly serve and follow Jesus, we'll then find that the Father will honour us. Not because we are amazing, but because our powerful, loving, beautiful, sacrificial Messiah has done amazing things in and through us, which brings us honour, but gives even more glory to Jesus and even more glory to the Father's name. Amen. Jesus is the Messiah, but as a humble king who gives his life for the sake of the world and the glory of his Father. When we truly understand that, it will change how we live so that we can face suffering, hardship, shame, failure, disappointment. We won't actually say, well, that was unexpected. Instead, we will know that we are followers and servants of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And we'll cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. But thank you also for sending your son so that we would love him more than we love ourselves and so find life. I pray for those who are not yet followers of Jesus that you would turn their hearts to follow him. And I pray for those who are followers of Jesus that you would help us to continually die to ourselves and to enjoy seeking your glory. Amen. Well, we should sing, shouldn't we? We should respond to God's word by declaring his praises, praising his glorious name.
Our next song is called Hallelujah, another Hebrew word, praise the Lord. And it speaks of how Jesus faced the hour of his death so that we might be set free. So we praise the Lord, we give glory to him. Let's stand and sing.